Well, in verses 1 through 5 that we looked at a week before last, and before I get into that, I, I want to thank Alex for filling in for me last Sunday. Uh, I've heard several good comments from you that Alex did a good job, and I had no doubt that he would, and I'm grateful for him uh, stepping in and filling in while we were able to go to Georgia and visit my parents and have some time there. So thank you, Alex, for doing that. Um, In verses 1 through 5, as I said, Paul told the Thessalonians, when we looked at those verses, that they should not be worried that they had missed the second coming of Christ. If you'll remember, they've been taught some false doctrine that Jesus has come and they've missed... Uh, the return of Christ, and he told them in verse 5, as we looked at it, they should know this because he was with them at one point in time in Thessalonica, and he had taught them the things concerning the return of Jesus. If you'll remember, he said, I've been there, I've done told you about these things, here's what I taught you, you need to reflect and remember what I've already taught you. Now, we today don't know everything that Paul taught the Thessalonians concerning the return of Jesus because Paul here does not tell us everything he told the Thessalonians. But he does tell us that the return of Jesus in verses 1-5 through will not take place until two things happen. The rebellion and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So Paul is telling these Thessalonian Christians and he's telling us today that the return of Jesus is still in the future. The important thing is to know that Jesus is going to come. We all have different views about when, uh, uh, pre-trib, post-trib. I'll go ahead and tell you up front. I know some of you are sitting here today. We're going to get into that. I'm waiting. I hate to bust your bubble, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But we're not necessarily going to go there and discuss those things. Uh, The rebellion that Paul refers to here, I think, as I told you, is is a a religious apostasy, a falling away, a rebellion in which many in the church will fall away. And by by this I mean there are uh, people who are Christian in name only who will fall away. In other words, I'm talking about people who in this rebellion that will fall away who were never true followers of Jesus. True followers of Jesus, and listen to me carefully, never fall away. True believers never fall away. They may stumble, but they never fall away. Also, the rebellion, uh, as I said, could refer to a worldwide rebellion against God and against authority and civil order. I think that the rebellion can involve both those aspects. Whether it does or not, I can't be for sure, but I think it has the possibility of those. So, with these reminders of what they had been taught, Paul tells the Thessalonians, Christians, as well as us today, there's no reason to be shaken, there's no reason to be alarmed. More importantly, there's no reason, here's the key, there's no reason for you to be deceived about the return of Jesus. Because you have the Word of God, which keeps you from losing your head, we talked about Paul, that's what that wording meant. Don't be shaken or alarmed. Losing your head and it keeps you from being deceived. This book here, the very Word of God, will keep you and I from being deceived. And I, said, and I say this as nice as I can. It will only do that as long as you and I apply ourselves to know the truths within these pages. The application we took away week before last was how important it was for us to know the Word of God. How important it is for us to study the Word of God. It's extremely important that you read your Bibles and you pray and you study. And that you come to church consistently to hear the teaching of God's Word so that you are not deceived. The Christian needs to make sure that the Word of God is what's anchoring his life. 
and what's framing all his thinking about all of life. This is our life. The gospel is our life, but this tells us about that gospel that we know. It tells us about our God. This word points us to a good and great and glorious God. And the more we read it, the more we study it, the more we see that, and the more we trust God, the more we are not prone to be deceived. In verses 6 through 12, Paul, I think, continues this subject of deception, of not being deceived. So the main idea that I think we can take from verses 6 through 12 is this. Beware of deception in the present and in the future. Beware of deception in the present and in the future. So let's look at verses 6 through 8. If you're looking for an outline, here's what we have in verses 6 through 8. The restraining and the destruction of the lawless one. The restraining and the destruction of the lawless one. He says in verse 6, Paul does, and you know... What is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That's very important there. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Notice in verse 6, he says, And you know... What's the next word? What? You know what is restraining him now that he may be revealed in his time. Paul tells the Christian that there's something that is restraining this man of lawlessness. Now in the present time, there's something that is restraining him, holding him back. But there will come a day when that man of lawlessness will be revealed. He'll be known. We'll know who he is. And then in verse 7... Paul tells us that the mystery of lawlessness is what? He's already at work. He'll be revealed in in God's time, but the spirit of that lawlessness one, he is already at work. There's deception of this lawless one. There's a spirit of lawlessness that is in the present time. Not only for the Thessalonians, but for you and I as well. Paul tells us that the mystery of lawlessness, he's he's already at work, and yet, as it says in verse 7, or only, he is now restraining it, and he will do so until he is out of the way. And then in verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed. There's a key word here in these verses, restraining. The lawless one will come, he will be revealed in the timing in which God has established, but there's something in the present time that is restraining this lawless one from coming. The word restraint has the idea of of holding back or or keeping something in check. So in verse 6, you see the word what. It tells us something is holding back this lawless one. So there's, there's a holding back in the present. The spirit of lawlessness exists in our time, but there's something restraining it and holding it back from coming to this full rebellion. But, the restraint will be gone one day, and then the lawlessness, lawless one will come and full rebellion takes place. Two processes here that I see are already going on, and they're happening at the same time. On the one hand, the mystery of lawlessness is what? What does it say he is? He's already at work in our world today. And at the same time, the restraining influence is also at work. So you have 
a, a spirit of lawlessness that's already at work and you have something that's restraining that, keeping it in check. This influence is preventing this rebellion that's coming from breaking out into full, open, blown rebellion. It's only when this restraining is removed that the rebellion will take place. And Paul's pointing that out to the Christians. He's pointing that out to you and I today. Notice in verse 6 that Paul tells the Thessalonians that you know what is restraining. He tells them, you know what it is. And I'm sitting there reading that, and I'm thinking, okay, Paul indicates to the Thessalonians they knew what was holding back this man of lawlessness, which was what? Already at work. They knew this. Why? Because Paul said in verse 5, he had already taught them about these things. Paul says, you already know what's restraining him. You know what this is because I've already taught you. However, we've not had the benefit of Paul's teaching, have we not? Paul says he taught these people these things, but you and I were not there to hear all the teaching that Paul gives them. And Paul doesn't tell us everything he taught them. And I found it interesting this week. These Thessalonians knew what the what and the he was, but you and I don't necessarily know, right? So we ask, what does Paul mean when he talks about this restraining power that is presently holding him back? Delaying the appearance of this lawless one. You know, if you're like me this week, I was going, well, the Thessalonians know. I want to know. Why do they get to know and I don't get to know? The what in verse 6 and the he in verse 7 have caused headaches for Bible scholars for hundreds of years. There's been lots of ink and lots of paper where people have studied and written about who this restraining power is and even who the lawless one is. Hundreds of years, people have been writing and giving their opinions and their views of who this restraining power is and even who the lawless one is. And I I think I told you when we did verses 1 through 5, what was my response? I have no idea who this person is. People speculate, but I have no idea. And I I think that's the, the approach to take. The approach to take is we know one's coming. We don't know who he is, but we trust God's Word that that will happen, that will take place. Augustine or Augustine, ever how you want to, to say that word, a 4th century theologian and one of the most brilliant theologians that ever lived, responded to the speculations of his day. People were speculating who this restraining power was. And Augustine, one of the smartest men who ever lived when it comes to theology, here's what he said. I frankly confess, I don't know what it means. Augustine one of the smartest, most brilliant men on the face of the earth, says, I have no idea what this means. Here's what Augustine in the 4th century, 400 years removed from the writing of this letter, closer to that time period than you and I are, says, I don't have any idea. 1,600 years later, we have people who think that they can figure this out, and they've written all these books about who it is, But can I be honest, we're no closer than Augustine to having any clue who this person is or who this restraining power is. So you're going, okay, what do we do? What do we do? I think it would be more profitable to look at the facts that Paul does give us and focus on those. He gives us three facts. Notice first, what the he is at work now and he's effectively stopping this outbreak of rebellion. 
He's working now. That's what you now need to understand. He's working now to hold this rebellion back. He's keeping it in check. He's keeping it. He's holding it. He he is restraining it. Second, notice what in verse 6 is also referred to as a he in verse 7. So the restraint is both a something and a someone. Okay? You're going, you, you, you still haven't helped me. I'm helping you as best I can. Thirdly, at the right time, this what or he will be removed and the removal will bring about the revealing. And I, I told you my view of this lawless one is the, he's the Antichrist. That's who he is. The what or the he will be removed and this will bring about the revealing of the lawless one, the Antichrist, and then the return of Jesus happens. That's what Paul says you need to focus on. Don't worry about who the restraining and what the restraining is. Just know that there's something doing it. And I'm going to allude to it here in just a few moments. I'm not going to leave you hanging. Now, concerning what or who is doing the restraining, uh, this is where I wanted to go out and kick the dog this week. I was reading commentaries and people's articles and people's opinions about who this restraining is or what it is, and there's no less than seven different views. And you're going, "Uh uh-oh. Don't worry. I'm not going through them. You're saying, praise God. I think that would be something that we would say for another point in time in another study. I'm not saying it's not important, okay? Don't misunderstand me. It may be something that Hint, hint, I'm inclined to do on a Wednesday night. So if you want to know, Wednesday nights in the future will be a good time to show up and maybe uh, find out what these seven views are. I'd be more inclined to do it then. Not that the issue is not important, but I think for our time today, there's some things that require our attention today. Alright? But here's what I, I will say about the restrainer. For me, God is the ultimate power behind whatever agent of restraint is in mind. God is the ultimate power behind whatever it is. God is the one. He is the agent of power behind the what or the he. I don't know what they are, but I know from reading and studying the Bible that God is ultimately in control of what? Everything. So God is the agent behind all this. I said that based on the observation that I make in verse 6. That's what I based that on. Look at verse 6. And he says, And you know what is restraining him now so that he will be revealed when? In his time. I think that in his time is referring to God. God is in control of all the history of the world, past, present, and future. Newsflash. Everything that will happen tomorrow, everything that will happen a hundred years from now, We serve a God who already knows every event that will take place. You're going, really? A hundred years from now? Yes, because God has already decreed, He's already ordained everything that will come to pass. You're going, but how does He do that? It's the sovereignty of God. I can't explain how He does it. I just know the Bible tells me that that's who my God is. And that God has come into this world and died on a cross to redeem you from your sins and rose from the dead. What a great God we have. What a great God we serve. This, this restraint is put on the man of lawlessness for a purpose. Notice in verse 6, so that, in order that, only at the due time this lawless one will be revealed. Notice the words in his time as I said. 
One Bible commentator said, we can paraphrase and say, in the time that is right or appropriate for His revealing, God will remove the restraining power and then that rebellious, rebellion will take place and the lawless one will come on the scene. Notice what it says next. So that He may be revealed in His time. It means in order that God will reveal Him only when God says that the time has come for it to happen. Listen, God is in control of everything. I think what Paul is telling us, don't worry... This is going to happen, but God is in control of everything that's going on. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be seed. We don't need to be losing our head. The time, without a doubt, is set by God. God will bring history to a conclusion in His own timing. I don't know about you, folks. I wake up every day. You and I do, and we're uncertain about what's going to happen tomorrow, are we not? If you are a child of God, you serve a God who knows everything that's going to take place in your life today, tomorrow, and ever how long you live. God is in control and we rest in God's goodness and His control of all things. Look at something very interesting in verse 7. Paul tells us the mystery of lawlessness is what? It's already at work. Here's something that I think we should be more concerned with than who the restrainer is. The restrainer, I think, is important. But I think Paul is saying, here is where we need to focus. We need to be more concerned about this spirit of lawlessness that's already at work and not worry about who the restrainer is. It's good to know that I think God's behind whoever it is, restraining it. He's in control. But there's the spirit of lawlessness that's already at work. In verse 7, Paul uses the word mystery. The word mystery, uh, I've told you, and the majority of Paul's writings means a truth that was once hidden, but now it's been revealed. But that's not the case here. The mystery is still a secret, and it's contrasted with this future revelation of this lawless one. In other words, before the lawless one is revealed, the lawlessness he represents is already operating secretly. It's going on in our world today. Some Bible commentators refer to this as the mystery of sin. How many of you would say that sin is already at work in our world today? It's already, what did Paul say? He says it's already at work in this world, but know that there is someone restraining it, holding it back, keeping it in check. But one day, he will be gone, and then this full-blown rebellion, this lawless one will come. John in, chapter, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18 says this, the Antichrist is coming. Even now many, many Antichrists have come. What did John say? He said the time is coming when the Antichrist will come. But even now there are many Antichrists who have already come. Not physical uh, uh, beings, or it could be, but there have been many Antichrists who have already come into this world and they're prefiguring the ultimate Antichrist who will come. We can see the influence all around us today, can we not? This mystery, the spirit of lawlessness, we see it in the materialism of a consumer society which puts everything ahead of God. That's what this is. It's a spirit of rebellion, a spirit of lawlessness. We see it in those who claim that there are no moral absolutes. Do you realize you live in a day and time where there are people who say there is no absolute truth? Whatever floats your boat, whatever makes you feel, whatever you think, if it's true to you, it may not be true to me, but that's fine, that's all right. I don't know about you, but you talk to me afterwards, I could tell you what I think that kind of thinking is. It's a spirit of 
lawlessness. We see it in the permissiveness of our society, which cheapens the sanctity of human life. I'll go ahead and say it from the pulpit. Killing babies is a sin. No one has a right to take innocent human life. That's already at work in our life. The permissiveness of society which cheapens, and I'll go ahead and say the three-letter word that makes us gasp, sex. Our world has corrupted that. Marriage, family, all of these God created and instituted, but there's a spirit of lawlessness that's already at work in this world. But no, there is something that's keeping it in check, holding it back, but one day it will be gone and this Rebellion, this lawlessness will do what? It will sweep all over this world without any restraint. You may be going, if God is in control, why does so much go on that's evil? I know He's in control. I can't tell you why He lets 22-year-old boys get leukemia and die. I can't tell you that, but I know He's good and He's in control of those situations. I can't tell you why that a gunman walks into a school and kills a bunch of uh, elementary school kids. I can't tell you why that is, but here's what I can tell you. If God is not in control, if He's moved out of the way, what happens to those situations? It sweeps the whole world. There's no restraint. There's no control whatsoever. Here's what this man of lawlessness has an application for you and I today. It's this spiritual battle that you as a believer face every day. It's this secret power of lawlessness that is already at work, even for the Christian. That means that you and I, those who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, we're up against it as Christians. We're up against it in our day and time. The Antichrist puts himself in the place of God, in the place of God's law, and in the place of Christ's sacrifice. That is what sin is made of. That's the work of Satan. And we'll see that here in just a second. That's exactly... But the secret power of lawlessness, the mystery of sin that is already at work in this world, that's what it does. For you personally, here's how that works as a Christian. When you try to put yourself in the place of God, you might be going, I've never done that. Oh yes, we do that quite often. You put yourself in the place of God's law. You put yourself in the place of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. You know what power is behind that. That's the mystery of sin that works in you even as a believer. I think more prominently, it's this spirit. Even as a Christian, it's all about me. And y'all know what I'm about to say, right? Who's our three favorite people? Me, myself, and I. That's putting yourself in the place of God. Nobody tells me what to do. That's putting yourself in the place of God. I'm a good person. If you're such a good person, then you don't need a sacrifice. That's putting yourself in the place of Christ. You see that in our world today. My, my, my word for you this morning is, Christian, do you see this in yourself? You have faith in Jesus. You're trusting in Christ. But you, you experience this impulse of sin rising up within you every day, right? It's not a mystery to you. It's not a mystery to me. Is your pastor standing here before you? You know I've told you before, I'm not perfect. I sin. Any Christian who tells you they don't sin, you need to have a serious conversation with them. Because apparently they've not read their Bibles. We can be born-again believers trusting in the death, resurrection of Christ and sin still in our life. When you're in Christ, listen to me, your sin is forgiven. That power 
And the penalty of sin is broken, but there's still that presence that's not yet been removed. Why? It's because you live in a world that is permeating with this lawlessness. The mystery of sin remains in us. There's these hidden depths of pride and self-righteousness that creep up in our lives. The root of sin remains in us. That's why we experience this inner conflict, a conflict that will continue until Christ ends it by bringing us into His presence. Does that make sense? We are believers, redeemed, forgiven, sanctified, brought into the family of God. We live in a world where sin still creeps up within us. But God keeps that in check. How do you overcome the spirit that puts self in the place of God? Look at verse 8. It's hard to see at first. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. Some of you have translations that read, the Lord will consume with the breath of His mouth and destroy with the brightness of His coming. Some of you have that translation. Some of you have translations that read, the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of His mouth, and I like this, and destroy by the splendor of His coming. This is how the man of sin is destroyed. Look at this. And the secret power of sin in all Christians will be destroyed in the same way. What hope is there for you when you find the mystery of sin rising up in you? And it does. Does it not, Christian? It's your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ when that mystery of sin creeps up in you. When you see the splendor of Jesus, you'll not be caught up with your own. We get caught up in our own splendor, our own glory, right? But when we look to Jesus and see the glory of Jesus in the gospel, that's what helps us put down, along with God's grace, that mystery of lawlessness. You can't be caught up with your own splendor while you're looking at the splendor of Jesus. Can I tell you something, Christian? If you're focusing on the glory of Jesus and how great, how good He is, you don't have time to look at yourself. Jesus delivers us from the preoccupation with our glory by doing what? Showing us His glory. I'm going to give you a verse. Don't turn that, but I want you to write this down, and I want you to meditate on this verse this week. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Listen to the words of Paul. As we behold the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into His likeness. As we behold the Lord's glory, what's happening? We are being transformed in His likeness. How do you become more like Jesus? You look at the glory of Jesus in His gospel, in His death, in His resurrection, what He's done to redeem our wretched souls. When you look at that, when you're focusing upon that because you're in the Word of God, guess what? You become more like... I didn't say that. Who said that? Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, As we behold the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into His likeness. Seeing the glory of Jesus changes us. Now let me say this. That's why gathering for worship on Sundays with other believers is so important. I don't want to be legalistic, as I said to you about church attendance, but coming together with other believers, and by the way, the Bible commands us to do that, Right? Hebrews, don't forsaken the assembling of yourselves together. That's why Sunday worship is so important. When we gather together, we're gathering here for what reason, church? To worship who? 
God. And when we're worshiping God, we're, we're pointing one another to who? Jesus and His glory. And when we see, as Paul says, the glory of the Lord, we're doing what we're transformed into the likeness of who? Jesus. That's why it's so important for you to be here on Sunday mornings. It's to worship with the body of Christ and we're pointing one another toward Jesus. That's why what we pray and what we sing and everything we do in the corporate worship service should do what? Point us to the glory of Jesus. Is that, is that just... That just blows my mind that that is so simple. When we gather for worship, we pray, we sing, and everything we do should point us to what? The glory of Jesus. Because Paul says, when you behold the Lord's glory, you're transformed into what? The likeness of Jesus. So when we come and we gather, what we're doing here, our focus should be everything we're doing. Our praying, our singing, everything we do in the corporate worship service should be designed to do what? Point people to the glory of God. So that we become more like Jesus. Your hope of prevailing in the battle lies in seeing and beholding the glory of Jesus. That transforms us into the likeness of Christ. Let's back up here. How will the Antichrist be overthrown? Jesus will be revealed. And He'll blow a breath like a child blowing a candle out on a cake. And he'll speak, and in an instant the man of lawlessness is what? He's destroyed. And he'll blind him with the glory of his coming. Jesus is going to come. He will speak, and his glory will do what? Destroy this man of lawlessness. What does that look like? The glory of Jesus coming and destroying, laying someone out? How many of you remember the story of Paul in the book of Acts? Paul is on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. And what happens to him? Jesus appears to him in his glory. And what does it do to Paul? Puts him on the ground. He can't move. He can't see. He can't do anything. The splendor of the risen Jesus smites Paul to the point he can't even see and he can't move. The Lord Jesus will destroy the Antichrist by the splendor of his coming. And this Jesus is your Savior, Christian. Does that not make you glad that you belong to Him? That when He comes, His glory will smite, it will lay out, it will destroy the lawless one. Look at verses 9 and 10. The mystery of sin, if you're making an outline, the mystery of sin in the life of an unbeliever. The mystery of sin in the life of an unbeliever. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Paul states that there is a coming of this lawless one. Notice it says the lawless one has a a coming. Coming here is the same word used to speak of the second coming of Jesus. What kind of Christ is this? He's a what kind of Christ? An antichrist. He imitates everything about Jesus, but everything he imitates is false. He has a coming just like Jesus. Notice also the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of who? Satan. The coming of the lawless one is to be with splendor and power. Power that is associated with who? Satan. Remember, he's antichrist. He's the anti-Jesus. He is counterfeiting the Lord Jesus Christ. The man of lawlessness is not Satan. Don't misunderstand me, but he comes in the energy and the power of Satan. 
One Bible commentator I read states that the wording strongly suggests that we're confronted with a parody of the incarnation of Christ when this man is revealed. In other words, the wording suggests, as I've already said, a counterfeiting of Jesus. This lawless one is going to do what? He's going to counterfeit Jesus, anti-Christ. The lawless one is not simply a man with evil ideas, but he's empowered by Satan to do the work of Satan. As a result, verse 9, he comes with all power, and notice carefully, false signs and wonders. Again, these are not just words. If you were to read Acts chapter 2, verse 22... Here's what it says. It speaks about the ministry of Jesus as being with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him. There's not an accident the same words are used for this lawless one that are used for Jesus. The ministry of the Antichrist, the lawless one, will be accompanied by miracles. But notice these signs and wonders are what? What? They deceive. They're what kind of miracles and signs? They're what? They're false. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs and wonders. Don't misunderstand. These signs and wonders are not pretend signs. They will be real. But they're done in a spirit of falsehood. They will be miracles that deceive people. Listen to what John Piper says concerning this. This is a warning not to make signs and wonders the ground of your faith or the criterion of truth. Let me say that again. This is a warning not to make signs and wonders the ground of your faith or the criterion of truth. All these signs and wonders are counterfeit, not because they aren't miraculous, they have satanic power, but because they do not point to the truth, they lie. Notice in verse 10, we see the followers of the lawless one. The signs and the wonders of the man of lawlessness deceive those who are perishing. Notice what it says. And with all wicked deception for those who are what? Perishing. Because the lawless one will be armed with every weapon that Satan has, he will lure people into destruction. With all the power of Satan, he will accomplish what he came to do. And that's what? To deceive people and to lead them into destruction. You should be asking a question right now. Thinking about, imagining that taking place. And here's the question that should come. Why are they so weak? Why follow falsehood? Why be deceived? Is that something you may be thinking right now? Why? Why would this happen? The answer is at the end of verse 10. They refuse to love the truth. Literally, that verse reads, they did not welcome a love for the truth. Notice it's not merely an issue of knowing or believing in a mental sense. It's an issue of what? Loving the truth. Question, church. If you love something, what do you do? You commit yourself to it, right? Moms and dads, raise your hands for me this morning. You love your children? This is yes. What do you do? You commit yourself to them. Whatever it takes to provide for their well-being and take care of them, you'll do whatever it takes, right? You'll do whatever it takes. That's what the idea is behind this love of the truth. You will devote yourself to it. You should begin to be thinking right now. What are, who are these that are deceived? 
Paul could have in mind, I think, maybe people who are mentioned in Romans chapter 1 who, 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 who see nature and they know that there, there must be a God. I think that's possible. But I think more of the focus is on those who reject the gospel. Both those outside the community of faith, and listen carefully, confessing Christians. And right now you're going, whoa, wait a minute. Confessing Christians? By confessing Christians, I mean those who appear to accept Jesus. The key word being those who appear to accept Jesus. They say one thing, but their lives don't give evidence of trusting Jesus. For these, on the last day, it will be revealed that they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The bottom line is, some people today who profess and make a profession of faith in Christ but do not love the truth, therefore their lives don't give evidence of being committed to that truth, the Bible says they don't love the truth and so on the last day they'll not be saved. It's not simply hearing the truth and knowing the truth, but it is a love of the truth. These people give the truth about the gospel no welcome. Thus the word refuse. They refuse the gospel. They, they turn it away. What is the truth? The truth is that Jesus is the gospel. The truth is that Jesus is not just Savior. It means that Jesus is Lord. And you've heard me say this before. If Jesus is not Lord, He is not Savior. It means your life as a Christian is totally committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. You seek to pour your life into obeying and following Him. Do we always get it right? No. Can I let you know a little secret? Are there days when you think, I've done it again? And you get frustrated with yourself and that bothers you? My daddy always told me that was a good sign that you belonged to Jesus because if you didn't care, you wouldn't love the truth enough to try to the grace of God to defeat that sin in your life and follow Jesus. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. We'll try to wind this up. Notice the judgment of those who refuse the truth. Church, I want you to pay attention carefully here, not because it's me, but because of what God's Word says. Therefore, as a result of not loving the truth, notice what it says. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. For those who think God is a God of love and He would never punish no one, He would never condemn no one, these verses here are the exact opposite of that mindset. As a result of refusing the truth, God sends them a strong delusion so that they believe what is false, so that they believe a lie. What lie? The lie, I think, is that you should worship the creature rather than the Creator. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. It says there, they did not honor Him as God, but they worshiped the creature rather than the Creator. And Paul calls that in Romans chapter 1, the lie. That fits perfectly with this lawless one, this man of sin, because he's going to put himself in the place of God in the temple in verse 4. Thus we have worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. Now, I know for some of you here this morning, and me in particular... You may be saying, how can God be good and just and still send strong delusions so that people would believe a lie? Does that thought in your mind? God is good and merciful and gracious. Why would God send a delusion to the point that people believe this lie? 
The answer is that God righteously sends delusion because it's the beginning of His righteous judgment on those who refuse to believe the truth. Those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved, this is the beginning of their judgment. God sends a delusion so strong that they believe the Antichrist. They follow Him as the Savior. Look at verse 12. Here we see the second phase of this judgment. In order that all may be condemned, who do not believe the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. God is sending a strong delusion to those who take pleasure in living unrighteous lives and who stand firm in their rejection of the gospel. He does so that how many? Notice what it says. In order that all who do not believe may be condemned. With these people, there's no love for and no belief in the gospel. Instead, they actively rejoice in what? Unrighteousness and wickedness. They are inclined toward it. They regard it with favor. They take pleasure in what is wrong. Sin for them is a good thing. Do you see the contrast? Sin is a good thing. A love for the truth. And because of that, God is perfectly just, church, and righteous in His judgment of their sinful lives. God is just to send them delusions so that they'll believe a lie. Does that make sense? You reject the truth. You don't have a love for the truth. God condemns and judges you in the end by allowing you to believe a lie and you follow the lawless one. That's God's judgment upon your life for rejecting and not loving the truth of the gospel. Let's talk about some application here quickly. Three points of application. And if you're wanting to make a note of this, wait till you hear the words, use this truth. Okay? Because I know you're going to be trying to write everything and you don't need to write everything. What does this mean for us? This means that saving faith, faith that will endure to the end, is not merely a flippant confession. But it is a love for the truth. True saving faith is not just to get out of hell free card. Y'all have heard me say that numerous times. It is a love for Jesus that is demonstrated in a life that has a deep love for the truth and a deep love for Christ. It's not some flippant confession that one day I did this, therefore I'm in and I'm good to go and I live my life the way I want to the rest of my life and I don't love the truth. That's not what the Bible says. It is a life where Jesus is your joy, Jesus is your treasure. It's a life where Jesus satisfies all the longings of your life. It's a life that loves the glory and the truth of the gospel. If that is the faith that you have, then the mystery of lawlessness will not overcome you. And your love will not grow cold, and you will endure to the end, and you will be saved. Use this truth to deepen your gratitude for the miracle of salvation. Because if not for God's grace, opening your eyes to your sin, you would be these who reject and refuse the truth. Do you see yourself as a person in whom a miracle of grace has taken place, believer? If you truly love Christ today, that is true of you. Second, if most of you are like me, when you read Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, you say, praise God. But when you hear the word condemnation in reference to your unbelieving friend, relatives, or neighbors, does it cause you great concern? This is extremely important for this reason. What you believe about sin 
and its judgment will shape your convictions about missions and evangelism. What you believe about sin will shape your convictions about missions and evangelism. How we engage in missions and our personal evangelism will in large measure be shaped by what we believe about the human problem and what it really is. Here's how I've come to view everyone I meet. Some of you have heard me have a conversation with you about this. Every person I meet... Let me back up. I'm not talking about you if I meet you out here on the street. You got that, right? Every person I meet, I assume they're lost. And they're headed for verses 11 and 12. You never want to assume anything but that. I don't assume that anyone loves the truth. I don't think that, well, you know, old Jim, he's a good old boy, or Betsy, she's a good old girl. Some of you in the last few weeks heard me tell you this. My daddy told me one time, says, Gary, he's a good old boy. He said, there's just one problem with that. There's not no demand for good old boys. Now, my daddy had a ninth grade education. He by no means was a great theologian, but I believe he knew what he was talking about. There are good old boys and good old girls, but there's not a demand for being good. It's what God says about you and what you must do. And that, that reflects our personal evangelism. If someone lives their life in complete opposition to the things of God, if they live life without Jesus as their true love, we cannot view them as being good. They cannot have a good heart. How can they be good at heart if they live life not loving the truth? There's something wrong with their heart. Use this truth to shape your convictions about missions and evangelism. The fruit of sin, church, is that the salvation of your children and your co-workers and your neighbors can only be accomplished by a miracle of grace. Jesus is the only thing that's going to overwhelm the spirit of sin and save your loved ones and your children. This is why missions and evangelism will have at its center the gospel of Jesus. That is the center of our evangelism and our missions. That has to be the priority of every pastor, every missionary, and every Christian who wants to see people one to Christ. Jesus, the gospel, has to be at the center, and man and his condition and what his heart is have to come together. That's what we have to view. Let me give you some practical advice here about evangelism. I have been there, and hopefully, by God's grace, I won't do this again. But don't attack another person's lifestyle. Don't attack another person's lifestyle. That's not the way to win them to Jesus. We think that cleaning people up is the same as saving them. Here's what that looks like. We go to the mall in Rocky Mount, where I'm not supposed to go after it gets dark, right? We go to the mall in Rocky Mount, we go to the local high school, we go wherever, and we get everybody that's walking around with their pants hanging down, everybody's got a tattoo and earrings, and we convince them to pull their pants up, and we get all their tattoos laser removed, and their earrings pulled out, and we put a nice clean shirt on, and they sit on the pew with us, and we smile like we've done something. But guess what? Those people are going to hell quicker than you think. We can't clean them up. We don't attack their lifestyle. You win them by lifting up Jesus. You win them by exalting Christ. Tell people what you have found in Jesus. The way to overcome the mystery of sin is to proclaim the mystery of Christ. 
And I want to speak lastly to those of you who have not yet repented of sin and placed your trust in Jesus. You're not loving the truth. I want you to understand the danger of continuing to reject the gospel. As you hear this passage preached today, some of you are putting off a response to the gospel. I know I've been there. Here's what you're saying. I'll become a Christian later. I'll respond to God in my own time. Even right now, some of you are pushing Jesus away. You say, I can become a Christian later. But you may not be able to later. The secret power of sin is at work in your life right now. That's why the Bible says this repeatedly. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Sinner who's never trusted in the truth of the gospel, don't harden your heart another day. Today is the day God is calling you to repent and turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Let's pray.